Good morning. Good to see you here on this uh, definitely Chicago January morning. Uh, I'd like to open by reading out of uh, John's Gospel, the 8th chapter, beginning with verse 2. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 2. I invite you to follow along with me. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. As uh, Allison has already mentioned, we are um, in this uh, occasional series in which we're looking at some of the more complicated, controversial, vexing problems that are being faced in 21st century life. Problems such as racism, divorce, abortion, war, environmentalism, homosexuality, living together. It's a long list, and I want to go on record as saying I'm not particularly anxious to talk about any of these topics. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, in most cases, I would rather chew sand than talk about uh, these topics. But after some time and reflection, it occurs to me that uh, it's the right thing to do. It's the responsible thing to do, in part because if a pastor is not willing to stand up and take a position on some of these moral issues, I'm not entirely certain who we would expect to take a position. And additionally, I am persuaded that it's the loving thing to do. We are moral creatures. We are accountable for the decisions that we make. And ultimately, we do not break God's laws so much as we break ourselves against God's laws. God's laws describe the way the world will work, the way the world does work. And so it strikes me as um, the kind, loving, and fair thing to be clear about what it is that God expects. Now, before I start, let me say I'm well aware that uh, the odds are high that I will make some of you mad today. Um, I'm not anxious to do that, but I can't be particularly concerned about doing that either. I am concerned about the possibility of hurting some of you. And so I want to be sure that we start with uh, the clear understanding that we are all in this. 
we are all guilty. We all fall short. Me first. Um, abortion is not uh, a problem faced by 50-year-old married men with power. This is not my temptation in any way, shape, or form. But I have my own particular temptations and sins. We all do. We all fall short. None of us are qualified to pick up stones and throw them at anyone. And so I have been praying this week for the the words that somehow um, leverage this example of Christ who protected this woman and, and uh, was merciful to this woman even as he called on her to leave uh, the sin that she was doing and to change her ways. Secondly, I want to be clear that I don't expect that my position is going to be the position that everyone holds here. I expect that there will be others who have positions that they feel very passionately about, different than the one I am going to put forward. Um, I... Uh, I have worked hard to, to understand the biblical position, which is where we're going to start. Um, additionally, I've worked hard to understand the best thinking out there from all sources. I'm in my third decade of pastoral ministry, and so this is not a topic I come to just now. I was a college pastor for eight years at a state school when you're around thousands of sexually active 20-year-olds, the topic of abortion is one that comes up with some frequency. And in that capacity, I went and talked with people who worked at Planned Parenthood and people that worked at crisis pregnancy centers. I had long discussions with men and women who argued uh, for a woman's right to choose and therapists who counseled women who were suffering from post-abortion depression. I, uh, in the last three, four weeks working on this talk. I I read dozens and dozens of articles from all sides, but additionally, uh, I spoke with people. I spoke with women who had had abortions. I spoke with men who had paid for abortions. I spoke with people who worked at pro-life clinics. I spoke with uh, doctors who have high-risk obstetric practices, doctors who work in uh, clinics in low-income neighborhoods, I've done my best to do my homework and understand this topic. The view that I'm going to put before you, I've not come to casually. Thirdly, I want to also acknowledge that I know that this topic is remarkably personal for many of you. If the statistics are even close to being accurate, those statistics that suggest that uh, 25 to 30 percent of all pregnancies in this country in the last 40 years have been ended by abortion, and that over 40% of women have terminated one of their pregnancies. If those statistics are close to being accurate, and there's no reason to think that they are overstated because they're self-reported, so if anything they're understated, then that means that everyone in this room is at most one degree removed from this issue. Uh, My hope, my prayer, my goal and objective today is to uh, share with you information that will, uh, that will lead people to make decisions in the future for life. It is also to challenge the church, and that is all of us, to be loving and compassionate and merciful with people, whoever they are, in whatever kind of trouble they find themselves.
And additionally, finally, it is, um, it is also to, to, call, uh, to call those who are hurt uh, towards hope and healing and uh, ways forward. So, with that as a sort of introduction, let me set before you the classic Christian position on this issue, which was articulated from Scripture, adopted by the early church, and sort of uniformly in place in the church up until the the 1900s. And this position sort of rolls out in five points. Number one, human life is sacred. Genesis 1 tells us that we have been made in the image of God. In Jeremiah 1 and in Job 10 and in Psalm 139, and we are told that God knits us together in our mother's womb. These passages and others lead us to an understanding that, that human life has been given value by God. That independent of whether someone has utilitarian value, independent of whether or not someone is wanted or not, they have value because there is a divine imprint on our soul. We have value because God has given us value. We have value whether we can produce or not. We have value when we're infants. We have value when we are disabled. We have value when we have diseases like Alzheimer's and have lost our value to produce or contribute. We have value because human life is sacred. Number two, children are a blessing. They are a gift from God. The psalmist says this, Jesus taught this, and we intuitively know this. When we hold a newborn, when we hold an infant, when we look at it, at them smiling and laughing, we, we are struck with their infinite worth, their value, that they are fearfully and wonderfully made. I will concede that when they move into their teenage years, we have to rethink everything that we thought earlier. But I'll stick with my point about infants. Number, number three, we are expected to protect the weak. God has a, uh, God has a particular love and concern for the poor, for the oppressed, for, for the widow and orphan. For those others are, are excluding or overlooking, uh, he has a heart for them. This certainly includes infants. We, we are expected to love and care for them whether we want to or not, whether it's convenient or not. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 25, Jesus makes this open-ended statement, certainly not just limited to infants, but, but to all people who are poor and hurting and struggling. He says, the way you treat the least among you is the way you are treating me. Number four, abortion is wrong. It's not God's plan. This is both an argument from um, the points that I've made, it's an argument from other points that we're not to end life or shed innocent blood. It's also a point that is, that is, um, that is made a bit indirectly, but is made in the law uh, given by Moses in Exodus chapter 21. 
I want to read a passage there, Exodus chapter 21, beginning with verse 22. It says, If people who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined, whatever the woman's husband demands and the courts allow. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. I think reading the law, sometimes I'm reminded how thankful I am that I am living um, under grace and not uh, in Old Testament times. But the, 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 the point that I'm trying to make with this passage is that the life of uh, an unborn child here is equated to the life of someone who is born. There is a parity of worth that is expressed here. And then finally, the fifth point, the last point that I would make sort of theologically, one of the very first points that I make pastorally, is that abortion is not an unforgivable sin. It is, it is wrong. It is a sin. It is not a small matter. But it is not an unforgivable act. God's love, His grace, His mercy is far greater than anything we could undo. And, and, and I, I stress this point because um, there, are, there are some who would treat it as if it is um, an altogether different kind of offense. Really, I, I pause here because as a pastor, part of what my job, I think, is, is to keep people from either of two extremes when it comes to their response to sin in their own life. Some people are very casual, very flippant. I've sinned, but God forgives me and everything's fine. I mean, occasionally in conversations where somebody says, I'm going to do this, and then I will confess it as sin later on. And I said, no, that's not, that's not the way to do this. And they go, well, I'm going to do it because I know that God will forgive me. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to confess it, and I'll be okay. And, and I find myself arguing, you are, that is just a very dangerous, wrong way to think about this. We, we can be too casual. We can fail to, to appropriately grieve the sins that we commit even as we confess them and then experience the grace and forgiveness of God. The other mistake that people often make is to get caught in cycles of despair where they say, I believe that God loves people, I believe God loves you, I believe God loves other people, but I can no longer believe that God loves me or that God could forgive me for this. And in... in more situations than I care to recount, those have been conversations that I've been in with women who have ended a pregnancy and then come to regret it. And so, very forcefully, just as I try to stop the people from heading down this path, I say, God's grace, God's love, God's care is greater than that. It's appropriate to grieve, but it's a, God is bigger than that. So let me just offline say that um, men and women, because I talk with guys who uh, have been complicit here, uh, if you find yourself in this situation, you likely need to have conversation with a 
with a wise, godly, safe friend or uh, counselor to talk through this issue because I find that some people get stuck on this point. Well, in, in the last month, I, I spent a lot of time, as I mentioned, reading about this topic, and it's been a while since I had done that. I was uh, reminded of some things, and I was um, surprised by some things that I read. I was reminded how prevalent uh, abortions are, 30 million a year, slightly more than a year, uh, slightly more than a million a year in this country. I was reminded how uh, uncivil much of the dialogue is around this topic. Um, We are increasingly uh, uncivil in our public discourse, but this generally takes uncivility to new levels. And I was also reminded that um, the arguments here are secondary, Um, especially the arguments in favor of uh, ending uh, a pregnancy. As I, um, it's clear when you read the the arguments in favor of abortion that most people have not arrived at a position favoring abortion or the right of a woman to choose an abortion based on the arguments. They've arrived at this position in other ways. They've inherited it. It's part of a package deal that they have embraced. But the arguments are not particularly persuasive. Legally, it's almost universally acknowledged today uh, by legal constitutional scholars, those that, that favor keeping uh, abortion legal, that the, that the Roe versus Wade decision was, was bad law, that it, uh, it was poorly argued and that it overreached. I'm not a legal scholar, but I read enough to be persuaded that that's the way legal scholars think about this. I'm a little bit more conversant with moral arguments. And when you look at the moral arguments that are put forward, it's obvious. They're sometimes tortured. This is not... People didn't reach their views based on these arguments. So I was reminded of those things. I was surprised by a few things when I went back to the literature. I was surprised to not find, really, a big debate over when life begins. That was a big debate years ago, and now it's generally conceded that life begins uh, at the time of conception. But the debate now is over whether or not life has value or has rights. I was uh, surprised to not hear nearly as much about the need to keep abortion uh, legal because of the health of the mother. There are situations where the health of the mother is at risk, but because of advances in neonatal care, uh, now it's, it's a very different argument. Children born at 28 weeks now have a 90% chance of survival. Children born at 24 weeks have a 50-50 chance of survival. That has just changed the whole metric about uh, how physicians uh, deal with challenges to the health of the mother. I was... Um, I was also surprised when I got back into the literature to see that uh, there, there's the, the charge that those in the pro-life camp don't really care about the baby or the mother has gone away to a great extent because there are now uh, programs virtually everywhere that want to come alongside uh, girls, young women, women who, um, who 
don't think that they have the, the financial or emotional wherewithal to carry their baby to term. And to, obviously, there's many, many people who wait to uh, adopt children into their families, and so there's places for all uh, children to go, and uh, there's care and financial care for moms as well. So that part of the argument uh, has changed, and I was a little surprised by that. I was also uh, surprised to read in a whole new uh, realm something I had not thought a lot about before, and that is sort of the, the economic and geopolitical effects of abortion over the long term. As we know from the news, much of Europe is uh, caving in upon itself. And the result of birth control generally, but in many cases abortion in particular, um, most European countries no longer have the ability uh, to stay in a stable state in their environment. Russia, where average woman has six or seven abortions, uh, Putin declared 10 years ago that their most pressing problem as a country is having enough people that the military will be able to police their borders. There needs to be 2.11 children per marriage in order for a country to stay stable. Europe doesn't have any countries really in that spot. Uh, 1.7, 1.6, 1.2, 1.5. No country has ever turned it around if they've dropped below 1.9. Demographers call anything approaching 1.5 a death spiral. And so it's interesting to read some of those arguments. There's much, as you know, that has been written on this topic. As a pastor, I would say five things to you about abortion. Number one, uh, there are no shortcuts when it comes to moral issues. There are no ways around the, the, the laws that God has put in place. So when we choose the wrong choice, whatever that is, uh, we are going to be faced with harder choices down the line. Our options get worse. They don't get better. When you tell a lie, right, that lie often leads you into a situation where you're going to have to tell another lie. And then another lie, right? It's a path that we head down. There just aren't, there aren't shortcuts to the laws that God has established, which are for our benefit. Sex is um, designed by God to lead to babies. And that's part of the reason that sex is designed by God to be... Uh, reserved for those couples who have made a lifetime commitment to each other. One man, one woman who are committed to each other for the rest of their life. That's the plan. By the way, men in particular, if you have not been coming to men's fraternity, you are missing one of the most profound series called Sex, Lies, and Videotape that is looking at sort of brain chemistry and bonding and sex and how it contributes in marriage, it is, you need to, you need to get up, at, drag your 
backside out of bed and be here at 6 o'clock on Friday mornings. Uh, but but we, we've seen that a little bit on Friday mornings. But I'm, I'm just here to say that sex is to be reserved for marriage. And then children, most all of the time, are understood to be a blessing. So, uh, there are no shortcuts when it comes to marriage, we should, or when it comes to morals, we should not be surprised when sex leads to babies. Number two, really everybody loses uh, in an abortion. A child loses its life. A mother is wounded. The, the, the person performing the abortion is gravely wounded. And a nation is diminished. Now, we try to deny all of that, but I really believe that that's what happens. And I, it's obvious that the, that the infant loses, and uh, I, I guess I want to argue that it should also be increasingly clear that the, that the woman loses. Those who advocate to keep abortion uh, safe, those that, that argue often very persuasively for a woman's right to control her own body and, and to choose, uh, often will, will sell this right as something that is beneficial to women. It's just worth pointing out the unintended consequences uh, that have arisen against women. Far more than half of the babies aborted are girls. Like 60, 70 percent, in some countries, 80, 90 percent. It's, it's tragic, but there are many who want boys over girls and use the, this option selectively to shape uh, the sex of the child that they have. But what should equally be obvious is that abortion has really left women with more responsibility and left many men to be less responsible. Right? Many men say, look, I'm not paying to raise a child. I'm not going to be involved in raising a kid. I'm not going to be tied down. I will pay for an abortion. If you have this child, you're on your own. And that happens over and over and over, and it is a grave offense against women. Number three, it's seldom about choice. Occasionally, there are people who use uh, the right to terminate a pregnancy as a way to just uh, keep their life easy and convenient. There clearly are those uh, decisions being made. But when you look at the statistics of who's having abortions, most of them are poor and scared. And when you read the surveys of those who are choosing to end uh, the, their pregnancies with a, an abortion, what you hear is that there's no one standing alongside them. And they feel as though they just don't have options. Frederica Matthews Green, who traveled around um, talking and interviewing on this topic for years, said, um, the core reason I hear is I had an abortion because someone I loved told me to. Again and again, I learned that women had abortions because they felt abandoned, isolated, and afraid. 
As one woman said, I felt like everyone would support me if I had an abortion, but if I had the baby, I'd be left alone. I felt like I didn't have a choice. If only one person had stood by me, even a stranger, I would have had the baby. Desperate people do desperate things. There are lots of people who are desperate. And this is, this is, well, it's just seldom about what feels like a viable choice. Number four, it's not helpful to frame this issue around rights. Now, I understand that we do, and I understand why we do. That's the culture in which we live, and, and we can't expect people who do not believe that the Bible is, uh, is divinely inspired to be willing to submit to uh, the authority of the Bible. So the, these kinds of contentious issues get decided legally. The problem about this is, first of all, it leads to uh, sort of a, the never-ending cycle that we're in about people arguing over whose rights trump Whose, right? The right of a woman to control her body, uh, an end to pregnancy, the right of an infant to be born. And obviously that that contest is framed very differently by different sides. Secondly, it it suggests, I think, to many people that ultimately this decision is going to be decided legally, and I just don't think that that's the case. And thirdly, it suggests to many people that whatever is legal is moral. And that is not true. But, but the big issue that I would say to those who choose to follow Christ is that it's not helpful to, to frame this issue about rights because we don't, we don't really have conversations about rights. Right? We, we, haven't, we haven't come to faith in Christ to have our rights. Now, we have rights. There are basic human rights. But when we follow Christ... He's not talking about his rights or our rights. He's saying things like, follow me, die to self, pick up your cross, and, and serve other people. The, the first will be last. It's better to give than to receive. It's better to serve than to be served. Jesus says, look, I, I, I came down here. He gives up his right as God to stay in heaven, right? That's, that's what Paul says in Philippians 2. That was the, the great hymn that we looked at a while ago, that early hymn of the church where, where we celebrate the fact that Jesus, who, although he existed as God in heaven, did not regard equality with the Father something to be held on to, so he gave that up, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he became a person, not just a person, but a slave, and not just a slave, but a slave that would go to his death on the cross. So we have these discussions about rights, and it's just a, just a bizarre discussion for Christians to be entering into. What we have more than rights are responsibilities. And those responsibilities in the upside-down world that Christ has explained are to serve, to care, to love, to give. Not to fight our way to the head of the line and to do what is easy or convenient. Number, Number four... Seldom about choices. I guess number five. Uh, we need to help wherever we can. We need to do whatever we can to, to, 
to lead with love to help people who are in trouble. Um, I appreciate many who get involved in government and, and are advocating in the courts and writing laws and trying to do things on that front. I have been persuaded that while all of that is helpful and good, and, and I'm, I'm glad for people that head down that path, as I said, this is not ultimately going to, to pivot legally. If Roe versus Wade was, was overturned, um, and it would simply go to 50 states. There would be 50 individual debates. And some states have uh, pro-choice laws, and some states have pro-life laws. And what would almost certainly happen in the foreseeable future is that some states would make abortion legal, and some states would make abortion illegal, and it would be harder for someone to have an abortion, but not that much harder. That's, that's likely where this thing legally goes, at least in the near term. I would argue that we are going to need to lead with love because that is where this will be won or lost. When you look at people who have changed their opinion about abortion, um, it's almost never the arguments. It's almost always because somebody came into their life, loved and cared for them, and over time they were changed. Gary Thomas, um, who Gary and I were college pastors together um, back 20 years ago. Gary uh, moved on. He's a writer, and among the books that he wrote, he co-wrote a book with Norma McCorvey. Norma McCorvey is Jane Roe in Roe versus Wade, and the book is entitled One by Love. And it tells that, uh, that 10 years ago... Um, Norma McCorvey was, was operating, was the owner-operator uh, of an abortion clinic in Dallas. And in the same building, literally separated by a wall, a, a crisis pregnancy pro-life group set up shop. So, you can imagine, this led for very ugly confrontations 24 hours a day for the next few years. Uh, the parking lot was often uh, a very contentious site. People were yelling and being uncivil, but there was a, a couple, uh, especially uh, a, a woman and her young daughter, who loved Norma McCorvey. She was rude, vile. Uh, Gary said it, it's hard to overstate just how hard and calloused and ugly she was and what she would say and do. It was shocking, but they continued to love her over the years. And the conversations gradually became civil. And then they started to share their life together. And then the little girl started inviting Norma McCorvey to come to church. And after uh, weeks and weeks and weeks of saying no, she said yes and when she went to church, she, she found love and acceptance, and she gave her life to Christ, and she changed profoundly her position from being Jane Roe, around whom uh, our Supreme Court law was initially crafted, and, and, a, and, a, and a fierce advocate for abortion rights, to being one who argues that, that this is the wrong way to go. It's not the arguments that won her, right? It was love. And so I would say we need 
to love. I actually think there's a handful of things that, that we as Christians need to do. First of all, we need to uh, repent of our uh, actions or inactions. I think if an Old Testament prophet were to show up today and were to look around and were to speak to us that, that the abortion laws that we have and the practices in this country would be among the first thing that he would, uh, that he would scold us for. So I think that there is culpability for all of us, and we need, in one sense, to repent. We need to create churches that are loving and grace-filled, where people in trouble run there, not thinking the church is the last place I would go. And that's what many people think. The Gutenberg Institute says that 18 to 20 percent of women having abortions self-identify as evangelicals. Gary said that it was not uncommon for there to be Bibles in the front seat and, and bumper stickers for churches on the, on the bumper of the cars of the women that were coming in to, to end pregnancies. And in many cases, there is a sense of shame because they're having a child out of wedlock or just shame because they can't make life work. Even if they're married, this, this child, they just don't, they don't think they can do it. And instead of looking to the church for help, they do everything they can to keep it a secret. And that's, that, that's, that's shame on the church. We have, we have got to be a place where everybody knows that everybody's broken and no one's picking up a stone to throw it at anyone else. I think we need to continue to celebrate adoptions. We need to uh, encourage women that are, that are pregnant to make an adoption plan. And we need to celebrate those. Many of you who have adopted children, who welcome children into your family, can't imagine any conceivable way you could love that child anymore. And and your life is enriched by that. So I thank you, those of you who have adopted children and working with safe families and foster care and other things. Those need to be programs that we celebrate. We um, We need those who will work for just laws because we want laws that protect people and we want a society that cares for people. And then um, we probably need to look for opportunities to speak on this issue. Maybe it's just with our own kids, but to help people understand uh, what's going on. But again, uh, we need to lead with love. And we need to love those who find themselves in trouble. So, may we move forward to that end, and let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we clearly fall uh, far shy of being the church you have called us to be or being the people that you've called us to be. There are so many different ways that we can get in trouble. It's hard for us to believe that uh, your law is good. It's hard for us to believe sometimes that your grace is real. It's hard for us to believe that what we're supposed to do is to pick up our cross and to follow after you and to see in the example of Christ uh, a path that we're to follow. I pray that we would see and understand it that way.
Lord God, I want to pray for all of us. I want to pray especially for those who, um, for whom this sermon has